Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Roundtable, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, burnout prevention, and non-clinical careers. My name is Mike Asbeck, and I'm normally joined by John McDonald, but unfortunately, he got mandated to work this morning, and that is a, a situation that I'm sure most people listening to this can sympathize with, since that is part of healthcare. So John is not here. We're running solo, but thankfully, you don't have to listen to just my voice today. We have a great guest lined up, and without John being here, I'm just going to lean heavily on the guest and hope that she could do all the heavy lifting and keep the show interesting. So with that, we'll dive right into it. I am happy to introduce you all to Madison Loomis, and she is a healthcare recruiter. And I'm actually going to kick it right to you, Madison. Normally, when we do this, John prepares these wonderful bios that are somewhat comical and mostly accurate, but mostly for comedic effect. That is not me. So I, instead of trying to be funny, which I'm not, or instead of giving your bio and maybe doing something wrong, I want to kick it right to you. So Madison, can you introduce yourself to our audience and thank you for coming on the show? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I, um, I don't have any fancy titles or anything to share with you all, but I own a recruitment firm we focus on advocating, first and foremost, for PAs and NPs and helping them to really optimize their career through matching them to great practices in hospitals. So I have been in the recruitment game for about 10 years and have kind of gone back and forth between healthcare and tech, but I was supposed to be a healthcare professional and fell into recruiting in college. And somehow just found that, you know, I could somehow be a part of the industry without <laughs> having to go to graduate school. So I have a lot of empathy and understand, you know, how hard it is to go through all that. And I think that's why I love doing what I do now. That's great. And you, yeah, you found the hack. Yes. <laughs> $150,000 less in debt, I'm sure. Awesome. Well, so one of the topics that I want to talk about today is I've been thinking a lot about how to maximize compensation in healthcare. And I feel like, and I, I want your thoughts on this, I feel like there is a, a disconnect here because in the business world, typically if you want to maximize compensation, most research is pretty consistent that you have to not stay at the same job. The idea being that wherever you're at, your employer generally is always going to look at you in terms of value as what they hired you at and not necessarily appreciate growth and evolution. So to maximize compensation, you usually need to move jobs every few years and, and make sure that your your role is increasing and then comp as well. But in healthcare, that seems odd because I've been in the same clinical role for 11 years and I have patients that I've been seeing for 11 years. And it would be difficult for me to establish that rapport uh, that trust with my patients if I was jumping from job to job to job. I would also worry that I would maybe set myself back clinically if I'm jumping from job to job. Even if I'm staying in the same specialty, your role may be different at different places and maybe that would impair my ability to to grow. So let me just pause it there because I've, I've already put a lot into that. I'd love your thoughts on how to maximize compensation in healthcare from maybe a recruiter standpoint, but then also get your thoughts on whether jumping from jobs has a trade-off in terms of clinical competence. 
So I think you're spot on and you're right when it comes to the business side of the world, corporate side of the world, which has been where I've lived most of my career is, yeah, you know, every two years, if you switch positions, you'll see that 10 to 15% increase. You're happy. And generally, you know, there might be a little bit of a ramp, especially if you're promoted, but you're not having to, like you said, build up that patient continuity, that trust and making sure that you are somebody that, oh yeah, I go to so-and-so over here, right? Or when somebody's like, hey, I've got knee pain. Oh, well, I go to so-and-so over here. You should go to them too. Um, It's different. So clinically, I think it does go by a different set of rules. And what I always advise people to do is to not so much focus. And of course, you have your passion and your interest. But if I'm working in helping a new grad and they're asking the questions of what specialty to go into and how do I pick a job, it's a lot more about is there opportunity in the position you're choosing, right? Is there that upward mobility factor? And if there's not, then I would maybe steer clear of that opportunity. And it's hard to dictate that because every job makes themselves sound like they are it when you're applying, right? The job description is like, we hung the moon, come work with us. But it's really about being able to ask the right questions in that interview process so that when you get there, you don't feel like you have to make a change within a year and a half, within two years. And it's almost vetting out having to make that change proactively. And that's very difficult to do on your own or if you're going into it without tons of experience, knowing what questions to even ask. Um, But I think... Holistically speaking, generally speaking, all for being in a good place where you can rise up in the ranks and or just challenge yourself clinically as time goes on to where you don't feel like your skills are atrophying. You're not in a position where you're just doing the same thing day in and day out. And there's absolutely no growth as a clinician, as a provider. So you brought up something interesting within that. As a recruiter, how often are you having conversations with either potential um, clients or hires regarding upward mobility? Because I think that's something that is always so tough for clinical medicine, because very often we go to school for many, many years, and the entirety of our training is how to be a clinician. And then we get out into the real world, and maybe 10 years in, we realize that being a clinician is great, but also we're craving more, we need more. So is that something that's frequently incorporated in these jobs where you're looking for opportunities to have your clients or your um, potential candidates have that upward mobility? Or is that something that's more rare or or infrequent? Um, I think it's a mix, right? Because everybody's different. There are some people that you meet them and you can just, they know they have that natural aptitude for leadership, right? And so you can encourage them to hey, maybe think about an MBA and I'm all for not having to go back to school for something. But if you haven't been a part of the business world and all you've ever known is the clinical side, either having a mentor of somebody that has gone that route and or joining a practice where the leadership is not just corporate business people, it is also clinicians. And I think that's the number one indicator of can I grow here is who do you report into? You know, is it Susie in HR or is it Susie who's a PA and also rose into this leadership role? Because I think that is the perfect evaluation of how they view the PA's ability to have that versatile role. And, you know, out of school, no. But, you know, once you've been in the business, you've been in the game, you know both the back end and the front end things, then 
it's very viable. And so I think that's where, yes, you always want to look. I personally look for places because it's a selling factor. It's a motivating factor for somebody to know this is not just a go keep my head down, work my nine to five and go home. And there's some people that want that and that's totally fine, right? Like I've worked, talked to plenty of people and they're like, this is part of my life. It is not my whole life. PAs that I've known, I've got PAs in my family. It's more so like this is the identity, right? And that's a great thing. It means you're passionate. It means that you want more. You're challenging yourself to become more than just the clinician. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's important that we have space for both. And on the podcast, we try and make sure that we're talking about that because I'm very much uh, an aspirant of hustle culture, whether that's good or bad. And John, I think, is a nice balance. And he's not here to be the counterbalance to not being part of hustle culture. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. I think there's this huge push um, to hustle and to do this and that and that. But there's beauty in also saying, you know what, I'm content with my nine to five and it pays my bills and I can go on my vacations, but I'm also this in my life and I'm also that in my life. And I value having that balance versus just grinding 24-7. <laughs> so that's another interesting thing that just came up. As a recruiter, are you typically looking at candidates that are all maybe more hustle? And the reason I ask is I'm assuming a lot of times potential employers, if they're going to spend the money on a recruiter, they're probably not coming to you and saying, I want someone who's going to be really good at their nine to five, but wants to just work 40 hours a week. At least my thinking is a lot of times they're going to be approaching you and hiring you to provide someone who is a high achiever, an all-star that brings a lot of value to their organization. Am I wrong in that? Or is there placement where a lot of times recruiters may be looking for someone who is still just able to fill that role, work that nine to five, do a good job, but then also go home? Um, I think it varies, you know, because I've had some places where they, they say that, you know, we need the heads down hustlers just, you know, going to do a really good job. But I don't think that the, uh, the opposite spectrum of that makes them a bad clinician either, right? Like as long as they're coming in and giving it their all during that nine to five, that's okay too. You need those people because if you if we were all like, I want to be a leader, I want to be, you know, the director of advanced practice, well, there wouldn't be a spot for the one, you know what I mean? So, and then you'd have this huge imbalance. So I think it's a good variation and it's just depending on the client's needs. I will say as a recruiter, I do try to vet out and not work with clients who are basically running sweatshops. Sometimes you talk to these places and their just expectations are unrealistic and what they want in one PA is really what they should have in three headcounts. And um, I think that's also a way that I try to advocate on the client side is not just saying, oh, you need one PA to work X amount and be in the ORs amount of days and take on on-call and rounding and all this, but to also say, Maybe you want to split those into two positions so that you don't have burnout. You you do have that retention factor, and that's the way that you can help grow these PAs and that, that way they stay with you, and they're not having to make that jump to you know have work-life balance or to make more money and optimize their career. When I was doing research and trying to prepare for today, uh, one of the things I was trying to look for is any research that was done on clinicians that move from job to job frequently and whether there was any tie-in to clinical competency. And I couldn't find a thing. There's no research on it. So it really is interesting because my gut 
as we open the show is that if you jump around too much, that may impair your ability to grow and develop into the best clinician you can be. But there's really very little empirical data in either direction. And, and of course, the absence of data doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's not positive or negative. What I did find, though, was there was actually a study that looked at part-time physicians, and it was, I think, primarily pediatrics. And what it found is part-time clinicians, so less clinical hours per week, did have an association with poor patient outcomes. It was not a huge association, but there was a bit of an association. So the idea maybe being that if you're not in the clinic, just getting as much experience as possible, this is the entire idea of residency training, right? Is just expose you to as many possible things in your training period that maybe that does have an impact. So I'd love to to get your thoughts on that. Maybe it's a, a little bit of an imperfect comparison in apples to oranges of part-time versus full-time. But once again, to circle back to the idea of job switching or maybe not staying long enough in a position to become clinically um, a clinical expert in that field. Yeah. So I think, and maybe my take on it is a little bit different than the options, right? Of like, clinical competence and, you know, which one, if you're moving or staying, I think it honestly boils down more to your healthcare team, because if you're staying somewhere just for the sake of staying somewhere for the dates on a resume, but your collaborative MD is, you know, sees you as an assistant, doesn't give you autonomy, you're not challenging yourself as a clinician, I would argue that making a change to someone who does would increase your clinical competence because when you have somebody in a healthcare team that is actually working collaboratively in the way it should, then you're able to do what your value is within the healthcare ecosystem rather than just staying complacent for the sake of, well, I've only been here for a year and a half, so I might as well just stick it out. Um, and I think that's just really being honest with yourself in terms of, do I have the support? Do I feel like I am valued here. And there are some places where, honestly, they don't see the value. And that's a shame on them because it could really help optimize their patient outcomes and everything else that research has showed. But that's the downside of it, right? So I think it's just going where you feel like you have those opportunities, both day to day in the here and now, but also in the future. Do you have um, a collaborating physician who's going to advocate for you and with you and who's going to want to open up those doors? And do you have other providers around you and clinicians around you to where they're all focused on the same things and the same outlook rather than just seeing it as a nine to five or, you know, everybody's burnt out, everybody's miserable? Is there a limit to that? I, I ask because uh, in my clinic, when we're interviewing candidates, if someone has been at a job for less than a year, fine. You know, if they have a good explanation for it, it may be that they they didn't have good growth there, didn't have good support. You know, everyone I think is allowed a mulligan where they may take a job that is just not great. But so often I end up seeing folks in their CV or their resume has, you know, two, three, four jobs where they were there for less than two years. And for me, just the, the way that I approach it is if it's less than two years, I, I need an explanation for that. Um, once again, one is fine. Three big alarm bells are going off in my head. So in your opinion, from a recruiting standpoint, because obviously you have far more experience on that end of experience and when it's a red flag, when it's an asset, when does it become 
a red flag or when is the limit to saying, hey, this is not an ideal job for you. Go ahead and get out. Don't worry about making sure that you're here for X amount of time just for the CV. Yeah, I think a lot of factors play into it because I've talked to somebody that, you know, hey, say they got married to somebody that's in the military. And so every few years they have to change. And and that might be the reason. And when they tell you that, it's like, okay, that makes sense, right? That check. As long as the you can check the box of this is a reasonable, practical, you know, understanding the move, the change. Um, and then other times you might talk to somebody and as a recruiter, you get the same story of, oh, um, you know, I didn't like my coworker there or, oh, I, you know, wasn't getting paid enough or, oh, and if it's the same story and it's happened time after time after time, clinically, I think that is something that you may want to say, okay, is this person going to do the same here? Um, I also think too, looking at is this a perm position, right? Were they working in a travel contract or a locums? And also COVID was a huge thing, right? Like COVID impacted a lot of people on an involuntary way to where um, I think a lot of people didn't have control over maybe what that change looked like, or maybe they got into one practice or one specialty and it drastically changed during the COVID years. And it's like they did what was best for their career at that time. So I think there's a lot more empathy in recent years, but I do think there comes a time where it's like if you start to see a pattern and a trend with no realistic reason as to why they made the change, then yeah, I, I think that an alarm and a red flag. Let me summarize this maybe first section of our conversation and, and correct me if I'm wrong because uh, I'm sometimes apt to be wrong in my summaries. But I think the summary of this for me is we should not be afraid of switching jobs if we feel that in our current job, our compensation has either A, lagged behind or our growth opportunities have stagnated. And that if that's happening, it's okay to look elsewhere. And even if that means multiple moves within a career, that that is something that can work out if you have a plan. Yes and no. I want to add something to that. And I, it, yeah. So I want to add too that I think a lot of people make a change without having difficult, awkward conversations first. And I think that is key because we're humans and we are so wrapped up. Everybody, I mean, I don't know what it's like. I'm not a healthcare professional, but I do know that, you know, it's nonstop and it is, I mean, you burn out. And so in those moments when you're in front of patients and you're moving from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, sometimes we overlook and we don't see what somebody might be feeling or experiencing. And so it's taking the time as a manager to talk to your providers and clinicians and to say, what's going on? You know, like, tell me about your world. What are you liking? What are you hating? What can we move off your plate? What can we move on to your plate? Um, and having a really good temperature check on your team and then vice versa. If you're unhappy as a clinician and you have somebody that you can go to as a leader, and that's why it's so important to find a, a, a boss and not a job, right? Find somebody that will respect you and listen to you and not use it, um, as penalty against you and saying, Hey, I really don't feel like I'm being paid enough. And here's why, and be able to show them the numbers of here's what I'm making the practice or here's what I'm doing. And here's what I'm making in return. And I feel that based on inflation, based on this, based on that, I should be making X amount. And if you have that conversation and they basically tell you to kick rocks or that nothing's going to change, well, then you have your answer. But I think a lot of people make that jump without ever having that extremely confrontational, awkward conversation first. 
And I think that's just a part of being an adult is, you know, saying, you know, either I'm going to stay here and be miserable or I'm going to at least try to get what I'm looking for so that I don't have to make the change and then everybody benefits. I love that. I think so often we're afraid to do that. And I, I do wonder how many times people leave jobs where maybe there would have been some level of accommodation, because especially in medicine, providers are expensive. They, they take time to train here at my clinic. We generally budget in a two-year ROI on a new hire. So we're investing two years before we're even breaking even on, on the hire. So if someone comes in and says, this isn't working for me, as an employer on my end, I want to make that work because we've invested a lot of time and energy and, and um, work into this individual. So yeah, it's it's such a great point. And I think it is scary. It's it's hard to have those conversations. Especially if you're feeling like um, your job might be on the line because of asking. And I think that's the number one fear is like they're going to fire me for asking. But they have to understand that you bring just as much value to them. Right. And, and if you're doing a good job and you truly have the data that shows that it shouldn't be a scary conversation. It should just be a very real. Hey, I really don't want to have to go look somewhere else. I'm enjoying it here, but I do feel like I'm underpaid. And is there anything we can do to make it to where I feel like I can stay here? I'm a big fan of productivity based compensation. I know it's the norm for physicians, but it's a relatively new trend in PA and NP. Um, but it's so nice because I think as revenue producing providers, our value to the organization is actually pretty darn easy to suss out. And if we have the ability to look at exactly what we're bringing in, what value we bring, even, you know, taking these global reimbursements like surgery and being able to break down the parts that we're doing and figuring out the value of that, it's very easy to then justify what compensation should go with that in terms of value brought to the organization. So it is really nice to have those conversations when you can back them up with hard data. Yeah. And I would say before you have that hard conversation, have that data. Right. Don't have it be an emotions-based conversation. Make it factual and data-driven. Earlier, you said that you really specialize in PA and NP. And this is one of the reasons that you and I connected is there's lots of recruiters on LinkedIn. And I was drawn to your LinkedIn page because of your messaging or your voice as it relates to advocating for PA and NP and the value that they bring to the healthcare system. So I'd love to just give you a little bit of a space to talk about that. Why do you see PA and NP as important? How did you end up having your firm somewhat specialize in that? And then also when you're talking to potential employers that are looking to contract you to find good candidates, uh, are there situations where you're selling them on PA and NP? What does that pitch look like? I think there's a lot of nurse recruiters. I think there's a lot of physician recruiters. And I think that there is this lull. And I think that recruiters can also bring a lot of knowledge, at least if they're doing it for the right reasons, right? Um, to help people in that job search, in those conversations that we just talked about, and also knowing what to ask when they're interviewing and preparing them to be confident and know the value that they're bringing to the table. And so I saw a gap to where there wasn't tons of recruiters doing that. And so I think from a market analysis standpoint, that was the number one thing, right? But then it was also, I've got an undergrad in health sciences. I thought I was going to go to graduate school and um, didn't end up doing that. But I still have a huge passion for health sciences and the healthcare professions. I worked in a nonprofit hospital first out of college and while I was in college recruiting 
And I saw firsthand kind of the gap in care and especially in a nonprofit space. Not a lot of people want that because you don't get paid as much. And so there's a lot of gaps and there's a lot of patients that get impacted because of that. And so I think what NPs and PAs are doing is covering that. And I mean, the data shows that in terms of patient satisfaction rates, because a lot of the times when you go to the doctor, you're going to the doctor, but you're actually spending the majority of your time with a PA or an NP rather than that of the physician. And that is where you're feeling like you're being listened to, right? We've all been in a room where we feel like the doctor comes in and literally like runs around the room, does something really quick and then is out. And you're like, uh, what's going on? Um, I've never had that experience with a PA or an NP. And I think it's that level of empathy that we need to bring back into the healthcare system because it has been so focused on just how much can we bill, how much can we reimburse, how much can we make, rather than that of what are we actually trying to do? What is the purpose here? Well, that's fantastic. So the one thing I'd also like to follow up on, though, is how do you pitch this? So that's the part that I'm really intrigued in because I'm an advocate for the PA profession. I, I like to do a lot of that within New York. And I think things are changing really quickly where even a lot of healthcare systems that were maybe PA or NP hesitant have now fully bought in just because I think the economics require it. So when you talk to a potential employer, what does that look like? What's your pitch? Yeah. So I think first and foremost is understanding what their current practice looks like, because I think um, as we push towards having more autonomy for PAs, I think there's also a huge imbalance between the rights for NPs and PAs, but we can talk about that a different time. Um, I think it's understanding what their practice in a clinical setting looks like currently, um, because again, you also want to look out for that work-life balance thing, and you want to make sure that they're not seeing it as, oh, I'm hiring a, an assistant to the doctor, right? And a lot of times if they tell me, oh, we've got X amount of docs and we need you know, there's going to be two PAs that are covering these four docs or whatever, and it changes state to state. But um, it's really about understanding the value of how they're going to be adding to that setting. And if it's not going to be optimizing the PA or it's not going to be a good fit when it comes to just all the things, right? Salary, career, work-life balance, growth opportunities then I wouldn't pitch it. I would say, well, then hire another partner, hire another provide, you know, another physician. But I think for PAs and NPs, it can also be, I work with a lot of private practices. And so if they're thinking about hiring a whole nother physician, it's like looking at not only the demand for what they're looking at, but are they seeing that they need more time with their patients, right? And, and how are they going to build out the practice to be that of actually impacting the community rather than just adding another doc. Um, because I think a lot of places, and I work a lot with an orthopedic, is it's like, I'll talk to them and they do need more clinic coverage than anything else. And the clinic, in my mind, is best served to be staffed by NPs and PAs than anything else. Because that's where, when I go to the doctor, I'm sorry, but I, I honestly prefer to meet with the PA or the NP because they're going to have more time to spend with me. <laughs> And I ask a lot of questions, and I think a lot of people, when they have a problem, want that. They don't want just the quick visit. Yeah, I, I have this conversation a lot with uh, various people, whether it be in government or even clinicians. And for me, 
I never really take a clinical approach to it. And the reason for that is I hate the confluence or the um, the attempt to make scope of practice the same as autonomous or practice regulation. And they're not the same. If you have an independent PA or an NP, it doesn't mean they're all of a sudden going to go do neurosurgery. The example that I love is, you know, physical therapists have, you know, existed in their own little bubble as independent providers, and yet somehow they're not opening surgical outpatient centers. They're continuing to practice PT because that's their area of expertise. That's their their area of um, of clinical competence. So independent practice or autonomous practice, whatever you want to call it, it really is not about where PAs or NPs are slotting in. Their their clinical competence should be the same, and certainly the professions have an evolving scope of practice, and that is a separate conversation of how do you determine when a provider is ready for what task. But when we're talking about um, hiring practices or tendencies, I always look at it from an economic perspective. This, to me, is such a no-brainer because there is a shortage of physicians. We're not getting any closer to meeting that shortage of physicians because a lot of physicians are older and retiring and our population is getting older. Healthcare is getting more complex and labor intensive. And typically there's actually good research on it, which I'm sure you have uh, seen and are familiar with. When you bring in PAs and NPs, the physicians get richer because what happens is a lot of that low acuity work can then get off shifted to the PA and NP. And that makes more sense economically. If you're paying a PA or an NP less then have them take over those lower reimbursement activities or lower acuity care. This frees up the physician time to do procedures, to do that high acuity, high reimbursement task. So everybody wins. If you don't have an infinite supply of physicians, you need to really triage and prioritize their time and make sure that they are spending most of their time doing tasks that can only be done by them, i.e. surgery, Um, you know, really complex medical care. And then continue to downshift those things that don't require those 15 years of expert training. We will always need physicians. It's it's never, I, I hate the argument that we're trying to replace physicians. Physicians are needed. There's a lot of healthcare that requires an incredible amount of expertise, but a majority of healthcare does not. A majority of healthcare is not acute. And the more of that that we can shift down, physicians make more money. Physicians maybe feel Um, that their job is more meaningful because they're not stuck doing menial tasks. They're doing things that require a very high level of expertise. And then everybody wins in my book. I also think too that, and I've seen this where with that, I think the advocation needs to be focused on when the physicians get richer. That's when the PAs need to start seeing those bonuses based on their productivity. For sure. That's where there needs to be some element of a bonus associated because, and there are certain specialties that feel this more than others. I mean, you look at the shortages and there's a lot more shortages, I think, in primary care because you go and specialize and make more money. And so naturally, we'll do that. But I think there is a huge push for, like you're saying, right? And especially I saw at the conference at AAPA, there was like this booth there for the doctor of medical sciences our doctorate. And in my head, you know, as somebody that's not a healthcare professional, this was my first time seeing it. And I went over and I asked, I said, okay, so explain this to me. I said, these people are already in debt. They go and get this degree. And I'm not doubt, I mean, more education, more power to you, right? But does it change the scope of practice? No. 
And it's like, so are people doing it because, and I don't know if you have this or not. And I do. And I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on it after. Yeah. Because my thoughts are like, okay, so why drive somebody deeper into debt if they're not going to be in leadership? And for you, it's different, right? Because you are. I feel the same way. So I think anyone that is a PA or an NP that is pursuing a clinical doctorate, I would strongly disagree and, and try and hopefully have a conversation and convince them otherwise. The reason being is our professions are thankfully built on the whole idea that our scope of practice is evolving with experience with competence. In today's era, you can get really high quality clinical training without paying $900 per credit hour to do it. So I have my doctorate. I have it in healthcare leadership. It was a great investment for me, A, because the military paid for it. So it was free. Uh, but B, I do so much consulting work. My hourly rate for consulting doubled within two years of graduating with my doctorate. So it's something that absolutely can be beneficial, as you said, in leadership and administration where, you know, doing a, a non-clinical doctorate maybe makes sense or even an MBA, um, PhD. But yeah, I, I would also express your skepticism towards clinical doctorates because I think there's so much opportunity to learn the same amount of information and continue to advance as a clinician in more informal settings. And I would argue that somebody taking the money that they were going to spend on that and hiring somebody like you as a mentor would get them to where they want to be quicker because if everybody's doing this and everybody's wanting to put the letters next to their name, okay, great. Does that make you more competent? I don't know. Well, we don't have data on that yet because it's fairly new. It doesn't change the scope of practice. So, you know, and I think what I got from them was, oh, it, it makes you a better clinician. And I said, okay. And I walked away. I'm like, I don't agree with that, but okay. I, uh, I love the idea. I love the idea that degrees are maybe not good sorting mechanisms or not as good as we maybe historically think they are and that we need to find a different way to establish competence. I don't know what that is yet, but I think tech has done a good job of that, where there's plenty of people making big money in tech that don't have college degrees. They just taught themselves how to code, and tech is very meritocratic. They're okay with that. Medicine is the opposite of that. It's very hierarchical uh, and probably will remain that way to some degree, but it is starting to change a little bit. Well, Madison, what I'd love to do to maybe wrap up today is I'd love to just maybe have you go through recruitment. So me personally, I've been in the same clinical job for 11 years. So I actually have not ever really had any interaction with a recruiter. And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are maybe similar. So maybe can you share with us who is a good candidate to talk to a recruiter? I know a lot of times the recruiters are hired by companies that are looking for people. But at the same time, your job ends up being one of immense networking because you're always trying to find that perfect candidate. So if a clinician is listening to this and thinking, oh, maybe I should talk to a recruiter and just test the market. What does that look like? How does the recruiting process work? Maybe just give us the 30,000-foot overview of, of it from a clinician perspective. But I think if you're looking for a job, you're thinking about a job, you want to know just what the market looks like. Every conversation with a recruiter should be 100% confidential. I know for me, it always is. Um, but ensure that you know, you're not just giving away your information or letting them take your resume and slingshot it to 50 different practices because that's where you lose a bit of your integrity there. And I think it is important, though, to have somebody that you can lean on and go to and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or I saw this job posted for this amount. Do you think that's realistic? Because I'm making this amount and I feel like I'm being underpaid. Do you think that? 
um, having those conversations to understand if you are in your head and you really do have a good job or if maybe it's time for a change. I think that's such an important point because so often we may feel like we're getting screwed or or conversely, we may feel our job is great. And if you test the market, you may find out that your compensation is actually in line with your experience and it may be more appropriate than you thought. Or the converse, you may realize that you are really, really in need of an upgrade. My brother is big on this and he occasionally listens to the show. So I'll give a shout out to John. But he's really, really big that you should always be applying to jobs. Even if you're happy with where you're at, you should always be applying because it's a really great level set just to make sure that you're still um, getting paid an appropriate market rate. Now, granted, he's not in healthcare; he's in um, uh, health or in tech, so it's different. But you know, the idea being is, if you're applying to jobs, even if you have no intention, what's the downside? The worst case is they they love you and they blow you away with an offer that is unfathomable and you can't refuse. But if not, you have introductory conversations and you find out, okay, my current job still is something that makes me happy and still is something that seems to compensate me well. So yeah, I do like the idea of maybe always proactively looking or or being intentional about not uh, not being too complacent, I guess is the right way to put it. And I will say, I will say this just as a heads up to that. And I'm sure John, I worked in tech for many years and the tech market is very different for, for clinicians. I will forewarn you, don't just go on Indeed and now start applying to jobs because what happens is somebody like me who partners with private practices and I see it and I'm going to take a picture and send it to my client and go, let's start looking for a backfill. And then we hire somebody in their replacement and they haven't even resigned yet, right? That's fantastic. <laughs> and that's what I mean by working with a recruiter can be helpful because you don't have to send your resume to a job board to where you don't know who's going to see it. It's just out there in a database and your name and now they know is open to work. And you're like, oh, but I'm really not. I'm just trying to test the waters and see what market insight is. Having somebody who is in that market daily and talks to people daily to know, oh, you're making 120 over here. Well, this guy over here is making 140 and, and that girl over there is making, you know, so that you can know, OK, I've got a temperature check on where I'm at. And if it's good, bad, lukewarm, whatever. Yeah, that's great. I I will forever try and fight against healthcare culture on this. And I, I know I'm losing the battle and I'm just, uh, you know, screaming into the wind. But I want healthcare to be more open and transactional in that way. I, you know, the research behind it is so solid, in my opinion, from a psychological standpoint, that when you do the whole, oh, your job is your family and we all stick up for each other, all the benefits of having a family-like work environment go to the employer. There's very few benefits that actually go to the individual. So when when these jobs do it, tech being the great example, you know, having ping pong tables and free food, it's not because the tech employers love you. It's because they want you to stay and work harder. So I want jobs to be more transactional. I want healthcare clinicians to understand that they're at a job to make a good wage. And as soon as they reach a point where they feel like that wage is not appropriate, it's OK to look elsewhere. That doesn't mean that you're betraying your employer. It's transactional. It's business. And you're right. It's so hard in healthcare because I've, I've heard from other peers that where they switch their LinkedIn to open for work and all of a sudden they're getting called into the HR office. It's like this is not indentured servitude. If you want to test the market, this is at will employment. This is a, 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 you know, an agreement between two parties that is voluntary. 
So it frustrates me that healthcare culture is what it is, but I think you're right that you do maybe have to be a little bit discreet, even if it is well within your right to be looking and always testing the market. Yeah. And I would say too, and I've got a lot of respect for organizations, but a lot of times the data is not always the most accurate to specialty specific information and the reality outside of just hospital data. And I think um, if you are working with a private practice or wanting that environment or that setting, you know, there's not tons and tons of data out there. And so working with somebody that knows, oh, these guys over here are paying this and and this practice over here is paying that um, can give you some insight without feeling like you've got to kind of go all in. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. And, and I hired an MP a few months ago when we're onboarding and um, she went to put her resignation. They cut her hours. You know, I guess it reassures you that you're making the right decision. Right. You know, but it's still in the meantime, it's like, really? I always tell my folks here that. If you leave and you're going to a job that is a step up, I don't care when you leave, how, you you know, I'm going to celebrate it because every single person should be looking to continue to progress. And if there's opportunities for you to progress, whether they're with us or elsewhere, that's something we're going to celebrate. The, The big issue that I have is if someone is leaving and they're maybe taking a step backwards or it's a lateral move, because then on my end, I look at that and say, okay, what could we have done differently? Where did we maybe fall short in making sure that we were providing a good work environment, good compensation, but also upward growth and opportunity? But I always tell the people that I work with, look, see what's out there, because we need to always be looking for that. Your career is not a charity. You're not at a job because you owe anything to that employer. You're there to pursue whatever you're looking to you know, in terms of goals and opportunities within your career. And as, as a, I don't want to say as a boss, but as someone who's on the leadership side, I want to make sure that I'm supporting that too, where they can do that, not be vindictive and punitive and cut hours because someone's going somewhere else. And it's also like, you know, look, and then if you find something as a leader, you want that insight so that you can proactively retain them better and have that conversation of, well, I saw over here they're making this and that's, you know, our, our competitor. And OK, well, we'll talk to HR and try to figure out something to make you feel valued and that we can increase that, you know, and as long as they're performing and productive, that shouldn't be hard. But, it, you know, I think those conversations are key. And I think a lot of people are afraid to have them, like we said, but they're uncomfortable for sure. Well, as we're wrapping up here, I'd love to shift over to personal items. So I did warn you before we came on air, but. I always do love the guest reaction to personal items. So just to give you a little bit of context, John and I always like to finish the show with a personal item. And the reason for that is healthcare is all consuming, as we've absolutely discussed. And we love to finish with something that is completely unrelated to our careers, just to retain a little bit of our humanity. So last year, we had terrible weather in terms of skiing. We had several big snowstorms. I'm up in Buffalo, so it's very cold. Um, And we had over 100 inches of snow, but it all came in random storms and then melted within a week. So even though we made national headlines for snowstorms, it was a terrible year for skiing or outdoor activities. So over the past weekend, uh, it was just gorgeous. Last week, we got up to three feet of snow and we were once again on the national news, but everything settled out. And Saturday and Sunday, it was in the mid-20s, clear skies, no wind. It was just perfect. So as a family on Saturday and Sunday, we went skiing. 
And it was so much fun. It's just so lovely to get out of the house. I'm a big believer that if you live somewhere cold, you got to embrace it. So we love to do snowshoeing, skiing and all that. But I just love watching the kids get out there and, you know, test their limits and do things that are maybe a little bit scary. And then by the end of the day, they're doing that exact same run and just dive bombing it. So this past weekend was one that was very chaotic and busy, but um, it was really nice to get out and ski and get some fresh air and then uh, watch the kids be much braver than I am. They were going through trees and doing all kinds of wild stuff. But so that was our personal item. It was a, a wonderful way to spend the weekend. I guess I'll piggyback off yours. So my boyfriend and I, we are hopefully going to, I think, Colorado to snowboard for my first time. So I've never snowboarded. I was in the classes as a little kid at like Mount Cranmore in New Hampshire with skis, but it has probably been 20 years. So um, yeah, that'll be very interesting and potentially comedic as well as I try to snowboard and so I did the opposite. I grew up snowboarding and then last year switched over to skiing because I, I want to eventually get into backcountry skiing and, and alpine skiing. Um, but I'm making the switch and the learning curve is much harder than I thought. So best of luck to you. Well, Madison, can you share with our listeners how they can find you? So if anyone wants to reach out to you, learn more, or even maybe talk about different opportunities within recruitment, how can people connect with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, I predominantly, from a networking standpoint, LinkedIn, I would say is probably best. You can add me there. Um, my name is Madison Loomis. And I'm also, we've got a website, advancedscopetalent.com. You can go on there, check us out. Um, send in, you know, your information. I'll reach out to you and we can have a phone call. Again, everything's confidential. Um, and I'm on, let's see, Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, all the things. So you can't miss me. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We're White Coats the Roundtable. If you like what you hear, consider following us, even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike, and hopefully John, will uh, his, his employers will let him back next week, and we'll have him back. But Madison, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone have a wonderful week. <laughs> <laughs>